This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The horrific fighting in Ukraine has added yet another layer of uncertainty to a world that's still coming out of the worst pandemic in a century. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. The global conversation about this conflict is rightly focused on the deaths and suffering of this war and Ukraine's resistance, but I wanted to understand what it would mean for geopolitics, for trade flows, and the global economy. Many news articles have already pointed out that Russia is a crucial supplier of oil and gas for much of Europe. And my first guest pointed out that as Europe buys oil and gas from Russia, in a way, it's helping to finance this conflict, an absurd situation. By the same token, Russia is also a huge producer of metals, including metals that are needed for the energy transition. To understand how to think about the economic consequences of this conflict, I spoke to three different people. And my first guest, Mark Menger, is an associate professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, where he's also the director of the Global Economic Policy Lab. As always, these interviews were edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Mark. I wanted to unpack the implications of Russia's attack on Ukraine and everything that's happening there. Maybe we can just start with a really big picture. What were some of your reactions to this news? Well, I mean, on a personal level, I, I was, of course, shocked. On a, you know, on a professional level, it's very striking that we find ourselves here in Canada in a relatively fortunate situation that we will not be terribly affected by this, but the shock to the global economy is really, really quite manifest. Canada has a really small trade relationship with Russia. I think it's about a tenth of 1% of our total exports, similar level of imports. There are really three bread baskets in the world, Russia, Ukraine, and Canada, and we don't do that much trade with each other. It's largely because we're exporting some or mostly the same things, commodities, actually, as Russia. Oil, gas, fertilizers, wheat in particular. Direct trade relationship is, is not important enough for us to be really affected. I, I'd like to put it like this. We don't even need to hesitate about putting the strictest sanctions on Russia. It's not going to hurt Canadians manifestly if we do so. And fortunately, the government is doing the right thing in doing so. It's more difficult with uh, the European Union, the continental Europeans, because it's a, it's very divided, right? They're highly dependent on Russian gas. And when we say, let's put financial sanctions on Russia to really squeeze them, that actually makes it difficult for companies to just transact with Russia. And there's not really much of an alternative. And that does squeeze these economies. And when you think about the concern in the Baltic countries and Poland, I mean, it's understandable, right? I mean, these are countries that have lived under the Soviet yoke for decades and that are really scared and worried now. And at the same time, they are also highly dependent on Russian gas imports. I mean, it's much harder for a country like Latvia to say, well, we just switched to something else. Well, it's not that easy, right? They're not as wealthy as, say, Germany that could say, well, Let's bite the bullet here. You know, we're not going to freeze. We just have to pay a little more for gas imports. That's highly problematic. When Mark and I spoke last week, he said he wasn't convinced the sanctions at that time would have much impact on Russia, at least not immediately. Here he is explaining what he's paying attention to. I think the biggest question is how 
tough the sanctions are really going to be. So if Russia is cut off from the SWIFT system, that would put the Russian economy to deep freeze, but it would make it very difficult to even pay for gas and oil exports from Russia. Can you explain what the SWIFT system is and why that's important? So it's a system for which payments are settled globally. When you make a transfer from Canada to another country, Typically, your bank makes the transfer via this system. It goes from one bank to a correspondence bank in another country, and most most transactions globally are settled through that system. Cutting Russia off, it's possible, right? So Iran has been cut off from the SWIFT system. It's possible, and it makes it extremely difficult to trade with Russia. I mean, this would really be the harshest sanction that could possibly be imposed of all the financial sanctions. Many people are saying this is this is what needs to be done. If that is done, then that puts the Europeans in the in the very difficult spot that they are still dependent on the gas. Right? And they still need to somehow pay for it, because otherwise the Russians will turn off the tap. The situation is absurd, right? Effectively, it's the Europeans paying Russia so that they can sustain this invasion. So a lot of people are saying, no, we need to cut them off, and we know that this has been done. It would even briefly, at least for some period of time, make trade between China and Russia somewhat difficult, although they would probably find some kind of barter arrangement there. Because you know, once you're cut off, this is how you trade. You, you essentially barter. You say, well, we ship you this much oil and you ship us some other good in return. Do you think that this invasion alone is enough? Is this going to lead to a broader reorganization of trade flows? Well, I would say the biggest reorganization of trade flows we're going to see is probably more exports from Russia to China. This is probably something that Vladimir Putin might have thought about already, but it's not necessarily a good deal for Russia. I mean, the European Union is Russia's biggest trade partner, right? As an individual country, China is the biggest, but as a bloc, it's the European Union. And if Russia suddenly has no other market for its oil and gas and its natural resources than China, the Chinese government is not really in the business of charity. And they will say, well, then you need to give us a discount. So that will rearrange global trade patterns for Russian exports. There are some companies that are directly affected. So South Korea, for example, has been exporting electronics to Russia, right? They're probably thinking, oh, okay, well, if that's cut off, where else uh, do we find markets? But overall, and this is probably the biggest difference between the Canadian economy and the Russian economy. We have a strong commodities and natural resources sector, but we also have high tech and we also have services. They are only a commodities exporter. And the whole economy is they import most of the consumption goods and they export commodities. Given this particular situation, it changes prices, but it doesn't lead to a fundamental change in the global economy, I would would venture. Oil and gas prices did surge. I mean, we know Russia supplies both of those to Europe, but also battery metals surged. You know, Russia produces a lot of cobalt and nickel, which are in batteries. I mean, if energy prices remain elevated, what might this mean for the broader movement away from fossil fuels, the energy transition? I think at this point, optimistically, people will begin to understand moving away from fossil fuels is also a strategic dimension. The the more we can move to renewable energy, the more we can insulate ourselves from unstable regions in the world that produce most of the oil and gas. So it'd be very strategic and it would be much better for our economies if we make this transition faster. And if oil and gas prices stay elevated, that will give a a boost to that transition. But then we're really talking about medium term, right? We're talking about the medium term. We're not talking about next year. If you look at the short-term impact, we already, central banks, including the Bank of Canada, have thought, okay, this is the aftermath of the pandemic as we're emerging from it. They would say normally, okay, let's raise interest rates. 
We've already seen that. But if the global economy is hit with a shock and with increases in resource prices, uh, then normally central banks would step in with supportive action, which is to lower interest rates. And these two things, that's a policy conundrum. They don't go together very well, right? You can support the economy and then at the same time fight inflation. And again, for now, higher energy prices in the medium term, European countries will realize they really need to wean themselves off Russian gas. So it will give a stronger push to that. Maybe, you know, people, households, families, they might think, okay, you know, at, at uh, a dollar ten a liter of gas, I'm not selling my car. At a dollar seventy a liter of gas, maybe I'll switch to an electrical vehicle. Uh, it's it's those individual decisions that that will also kick in, and we will we will really see change there. That was Mark Manger speaking about the political aspect of the energy transition and how this conflict could affect consumer views on the energy transition in the medium term. To understand how investors and markets are already reacting to the conflict, I turned to Alex Tuckett, principal economist at the commodity research firm CRU Group. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Gabe. What sorts of effects have you seen on global commodity markets? Well, I think global commodity markets are quite concerned by this situation. You know, you've seen prices rising across a range of commodities in, in energy, but uh, also in non-energy commodities as well. And what people are worried about, I think, is two things, really. First of all, the, the sanctions which the West are hitting Russia with to respond to this war. That those are going to disrupt flows of commodities out of Russia. And with commodity markets already very tight, that's going to lead to very sharp increases in prices. And then the second risk I think they're worried about is that even if those sanctions try to avoid affecting commodity supply, which, which so far they've been sort of tailored to do, because obviously that's going to hit consumers in the West, that the Russia may actually re- retaliate against those sanctions by restricting supply themselves to push up prices and cause political pain effectively for Western leaders. So yeah, that's, that's sort of what's gone on so far. Which commodities in particular, leaving aside oil and gas for a minute, what other commodities? So Russia is also quite important in a number of metals markets. As a share of global supply, it's very important palladium, which is about 35%. Also platinum, quite important as well in, in nickel and some other metals. It's also very important in terms of fertilizers and raw materials of about 10% of, of global supply. Uh, and then lastly, grain, where both Russia and Ukraine are very big exporters. When you talk about fertilizer and grain, does this mean that we may see higher food prices? That's correct. That is, that is one risk of this for, for many emerging markets. Countries like India, for example, which is a major importer of fertilizers, that definitely is a risk that food prices will spike as a result of this. Is it possible that other producers, places like Canada and other countries that produce these commodities, can simply backfill the gap? Well, I can certainly try. It's, it's a matter of whether there's enough spec capacity elsewhere in the world to really replace Russian supply which is, um, is is definitely difficult in many cases. And, and so it's really just a question of supply. We don't have enough of it in other places to meet the world demand, or is it a question of sort of logistics of getting it to these other markets? It's an element of both. So if you look at Europe, for example, the big fear in Europe is, is particularly around gas supply and what that will do to power prices and gas prices, which also feeds into fertilizers because and other industries like aluminium, which are big users of energy or natural gas. But you know, the, the capacity, the LNG terminal capacity in Europe tends to be on the west of the continent, countries like Spain, France, the UK, which are not quite as well connected in terms of the gas pipelines capacity to be able to move that to the east, where where the gas would be needed if Russia were to cut supplies. So there, there are both sort of 
outright supply problem, I'd say, and, and also the logistics issues. You also mentioned that they export a lot of metals, palladium, platinum, nickel. What are some of the uses of those metals and what industries will that disruption affect? Yeah, well, this is an area where you may see quite widespread effects throughout the global value chain. So, for example, palladium is quite an important metal in in the production of of semiconductors. Over the past year, it's seen very severe problems with semiconductor supply, not being able to keep up with world demand as global economies recovered. And for the auto sector, that's been a real big constraint this year. So this is potentially very bad news for, for car makers as well if there are disruptions to palladium supply. Obviously, things like nickel as well, quite important for battery metals. And then both Russia and Ukraine, quite important in producers of iron and steel and aluminium as well. So all of these things could ripple through global supply chains and cause problems for a lot of sectors. Yeah. On this topic, if oil and gas prices rise up, some people say this could actually force a quicker transition to cleaner, renewable sources of energy, things other than fossil fuels. If metal prices are also rising, will that be an easy transition? Well, that's right. It's a, it's a double-edged sword because on the demand side, higher energy prices create a stronger incentive for countries around the world to green up their their power grids and switch towards renewable power. That would be kind of you know, doubly so in Europe, where you've also got a very strong sort of geopolitical reason now to diversify away from Russian gas. So that will definitely take time. But on the other hand, the fact that metals prices are higher, the renewables are actually extremely metals intensive, a point that we've made a lot of CIU. You know, wind farms require a lot of steel to make. Building out the, the electricity grid in the way that you need to to incorporate renewables requires a massive amount of copper and so on. So higher metals prices on the supply side will actually raise the cost of, of investing in renewables. So it is a double-edged sword, absolutely. Are there any renewable metals in particular? I mean, you mentioned that Russia is a huge producer of nickel. Is that the biggest metal to keep an eye on? Um, that's an important one on the battery side, definitely. So steel is also important, actually, for renewables, and steel prices have already, you know, already been incredibly high. Very, very tight market. I'd say that steel is also an important one. Yeah, and I know that you're an economist, so I'll just ask you one last question: What are the chances that this triggers a global economic recession, and of what severity? Well, that's not our that's not our base case right now. Certainly, I think that depends on how harsh the sanctions get. They've already over the weekend become much much stricter, particularly in terms of sanctioning the central bank than they were last week. And second, I think that depends on on the sort of the Russian response. I think the the scenario you can imagine a scenario which just causes a world recession, which is if third party non aligned countries. I'm thinking particularly here about China. If they seek to sort of circumvent the sanctions. You could get a situation where then the U.S. retaliates against them and uh, introduces sanctions on China, and that could lead to much more of a fragmentation of the, the world trading system. Now, I don't think that will happen. I don't think that's likely to happen, but it is an outside possibility. And I think in that world, you would you would be talking about a, a global recession. So that was Alex Tuckett, principal economist at CRU Group, explaining that oil and gas prices may remain elevated, but the metals we need for an energy transition may also be more expensive. And that won't make it any easier to achieve a movement away from fossil fuels. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanted to zoom out even more because Russia, like Canada, is an Arctic country. And my next guest, Rob Hubert, is an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary who studies the Arctic. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Gabriel. So Russia is thousands of miles away, as is Ukraine. What, what is, if any, the impact to this invasion of Ukraine on our presence in the Arctic? Well, there's two immediate effects and a third long-term effect. Uh, the immediate effect, of course, is that it disrupts any type of cooperation that the Arctic region is said to have. There are those that refer to it as Arctic exceptionalism. They've always commented on the manner in which when geopolitical events seem to have occurred, we could still cooperate, be it at the Arctic Council, at a Coast Guard Forum or whatever. But I think that what this particular invasion has done is it has driven home that it's almost virtually impossible to have any form of meaningful cooperation with an authoritarian state that uses force this way. The second thing that's going to drive in the Canadian Arctic is that it has driven home that we need to be serious about modernizing our defensive systems. This particular government has talked for a long time about the need to rebuild the military, specifically on the issue of the modernization of NORAD. It's been simply talk up to this point. Hopefully, this will drive home that the Russians are, in fact, a very dangerous neighbor and that we will get serious on modernization of NORAD. We will get serious on the re replacement of an aircraft that we bought in 1982 and that the, the defensive requirements of our North American Arctic region, along with our American ally, will be addressed. The third thing that's going to possibly spill over into the Canadian Arctic really pertains to energy markets. And one of the big issues that we've seen clearly after 2014 is that there is a limited impact of targeted sanctions. And after 2014, that was really the overall direction when the Russians began the invasion of Ukraine. And the response was to target individuals, to target some of their northern oil and gas development generally to, to, to leave the larger pictures off. North Stream 2, for example, continued to be developed between the Europeans and the Russians. Depending on how long the war goes for, how long the Ukrainians are able to hold out, there may be talk about actually bigger and more meaningful sanctions, and that would obviously touch on oil and gas. And if that was to occur, if in fact in the long term that this war bears down to the type of war that the Russians fought in Georgia or Chechnya, where it's not just simply sort of two, three weeks it's over, but in fact it's a long grinding war, then I could see calls for Canada to meet the European shortfall. And so this is obviously a very long term requirement. It would also require the government to reverse some of its most cherished policies of trying to move away from um, uh, support of uh, Western Canadian oil and gas. It means pipelines, it means a whole bunch of politically unacceptable or difficult um, issues. But if, in fact, this new geopolitical world emerges in which we do try to cut off the Russians from oil and gas production, 
and sales, then obviously Canada is one of the places to pick up the slack. Yeah. I want to go back to a second about what you were saying about we need to be serious about modernizing our defenses in the Arctic. Nobody really expects Russia to invade our Arctic. Well, it's not about invasion. You know, this becomes sort of the uh, red herring that people throw out. Even our senior, I've heard senior military, you know, joke that if the Russians ever invaded, the first thing they'd be thinking is how to rescue them. And it's a big joke, but it's not a joke. The threat from the Russians is aerospace and increasingly maritime. And so remember, people poo-pod when uh, Putin, of course, starts talking about the policy to escalate, to de-escalate if he sees a regional conflict developing. And that was in reference to nuclear force. And of course, everybody goes, oh my God, he actually said it in the war. Well, yeah, he's been telling us for a long time. The reason why we need to be modernizing our northern forces is, of course, the whole policy of keeping an enemy off balance is you hit their weak points. The Northern Europeans have been working with the Americans since about, realistically, 2016 to modernize their northern capabilities. We've seen cooperative agreements signed between Finland and Sweden, the so-called alleged neutrals, where American fighters and uh, bombers, in fact, can be based at their air bases. We've seen the Norwegians enter an agreement where American nuclear attack submarines can, in fact, be based in, in, in Norwegian northern bases. And I suspect that there's been all sorts of off-the-record developments of cooperation. And so the Russians are going to be aware of this. The Russians are going to know that the Americans have worked closely with the European Arctic states. And the reality is we are the weak point. It's not that the Russians are all of a sudden going to have land forces on Ellesmere Island. And so, you know, it, it gets me annoyed because so many people throw that up. They say, okay, we don't have to, you know, what are you talking about? The reality is that they will move to threaten the Northern Alliance should the war escalate. And the the mere fact that Putin threatened the use of nuclear weapons uh, a few days ago indicates how dangerous the environment is. And once again, if we look at how the way of war for Russia, they expect to have a long, grinding war. There's so many people are saying, oh, look, the Russians haven't achieved Kiev. They've not been able to achieve their objectives. Well, they didn't do it in either of the Georgian wars in the immediate period. They didn't do it with Chetnia. Don't expect them to have that as their strategy. And so there is all sorts of room in that type of an environment for things to go bad very quickly. And the other sideline to all of this outside of the Russian threat is the reality that the more that we are, in fact, seen as the weak link, the more the Americans are just simply going to move to protect the northern flanks themselves. And so we run into the situation where everybody always wrings their hands about the Arctic sovereignty issue. Do we control the Arctic? Well, in this case, we'd be handing it to the Americans because of our refusal to do it seriously. And that is always a threat if the Americans think they are truly threatened. Yeah. And to go back to what you started off on as saying, this really puts a dent in cooperation because Russia sits on the Arctic Council. What does that council do and what does it mean now that it will not be able to function as it had just a few months ago? Yeah. Well, the Arctic Council has been pioneering in terms of multilateral cooperations on two fronts. On the first front, it is the means by which we got to know the other northern states. We got to know the Russians. We got to be able to know who to cooperate how to get things done. The second thing is getting the stuff done. So we have the ability to identify new problems. 
a lot of our understanding of the truly um, horrific impacts of climate change on the Arctic region developed because of studies and cooperation that was conducted and, uh, and initiated at the Arctic Council, sometimes in conjunction with other northern organizations, but it was always the Arctic Council at the center for all of this. The Arctic Council was also critical for actually starting to develop new forms of governance in the Arctic. We had several treaties emerge from the Arctic Council, one dealing with search and rescue, another dealing with a response to an oil spill, another one on scientific um, uh, cooperation, and so that there were very meaningful steps together in which we were able to proceed. But at the heart of all of that was the ability to trust one another. In other words, a lot of the cooperation that develops at the Arctic Council comes because it gives the forum in which the former adversaries could sit down, talk through some of their differences, but also then start talking about their similarities. And so it built confidence. It built trust. It gave a, a sense of connection that hadn't been there before. And once again, many of the key individuals that played a critical role on the Russian side for that cooperation are completely identified with this horrific attack and naked aggression against Ukraine. And so the foreign minister and others, you know, it becomes very difficult to think of any context in which we can very soon meaningfully say, okay, well, we know, we, we, we know that's a bunch of Ukrainians you just basically murdered and destroyed their country. Now, let's sit down and have a have a cup of coffee and sit down and, and talk further in terms of some of the uh, responses to, uh, to climate change. I mean, that's, how, how do you do that? That was Rob Hubert, an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening to our show and thank you to our guests, Mark Manger, an associate professor at the University of Toronto, Alex Tuckett, principal economist at CRU Group, and Rob Hubert, Associate Professor at the University of Calgary. Thanks to the crack team behind the show, including Bryce Hall for composing and performing the original music you heard and executive producing the show, to Pamela Heaven, Noella Ovid, and Victoria Wells for web support, and to the editors at the Financial Post. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com. <laughs>